On behalf of Weinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today is Jonathan Blockmacher. Our topic today is Section 2704, specifically potential regulations that may be issued by the Treasury under Section 2704B. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here with you. Jonathan, could you please give us a little bit of background on Chapter 14 in general, but specifically 2704B? Sure. Well, as everyone knows, the Internal Revenue Service doesn't like people reducing its taxes. And one of the ways that people have tried to reduce the estate and gift taxes, and sometimes even generation skipping tax, is to try to freeze the value of what the client owns and have future growth in the asset not be in that person's estate, but be held outright or in trust for younger members of the family like children and grandchildren or to take an action in which you change the nature of what you own so as to reduce its value. And for the past many years, a very common way of trying to reduce the value of what is owned is to transfer assets, such as marketable securities, to a private enterprise, such as a family partnership. And as a general matter, interest in a private enterprise is going to be worth less than the underlying assets, especially if there's something like marketable securities. In the mid-1980s, the Internal Revenue Service and the Treasury went to Congress and asked it to pass a law that would limit the ability of taxpayers to take such action. And Congress passed Section 2036C, and eventually regulations came out from under that, but it turned out it was not very effective in getting where the Treasury wanted to be. So on October 9, 1990, Congress enacted and the President signed Chapter 14. Chapter 14 consists of four sections. The first is Section 2701, which basically says you cannot freeze the value of your estate where you structure an enterprise that the family controls or owns the majority interest in, where the senior generation gets a preferred type interest, such as preferred stock in a corporation, which would tend to be frozen in value over time, and younger members of the family would receive the more common interest, which would get the growth. No, that can no longer be done under Section 2701, except if you fall under very, very limited exceptions made there. Section 2702 was enacted to eliminate an arrangement called a Grantor Retained Income Trust, or GRIT, known as a GRIT. A person would create a trust and retain the right to the income and give away or sell away the value of the remainder. In those days, the value of an income interest was determined by assuming you'd receive a steady rate of interest, and that rate of interest was 10%. 10%. It was very high. And that high rate of interest, which inured to the benefit of the person who held the income interest in the trust, would greatly crush the value of the remainder. And in a circumstance where the property did not produce at least 10% a year, even if the overall return was 10%, the value of the remainder would grow. And 2704 closed that down, although, as we know, it has a special rule for grantor retained annuity trusts, so you can create such a trust and retain an annuity, and the annuity will be given value. And, of course, such arrangements, grantor-retained annuity trusts, known, of course, as GRATs, are very common today in planning. 
The third thing they did was adopt Section 2703, and basically Section 2703 put additional flesh on when the courts would disregard a buy-sell agreement for valuation purposes. So if a mother and daughter had a business together and it provided that the daughter could buy the mother's interest when the mother died, the regulations and the rules under Section 2703 basically say we're going to disregard that buy-sell agreement and value it as though there were no option to buy mom's interest when she dies. The courts have been very, very favorable to the service in recent years since Section 2703 was enacted. It's almost as though 2703 didn't need to be enacted, but it is there, and it's something that you have to consider whenever you're having an option or a buy-sell agreement among family members. In fact, it's strange. 2701, 2702, and 2704, which we'll get to in a moment, deal with arrangements among members of a family, but 2703 talks about the natural objects of the taxpayer's bounty. And that natural objects of the taxpayer's bounty is something that came out of case law, and they are using that under Section 2703, but there's no clear definition of that as there is for members of the family. Section 2704 actually consists of two parts. It's almost as though they're separate sections. The first is where you have voting rights or liquidation rights that disappear upon a transfer. And when you're dealing with members of the family, when they have control of the entity both before and after the partnership or corporation, the fact that the voting or liquidation rights have expired will not be considered in determining the value of the property. That was basically to overrule a case called Harrison, which Stacey Eastland, one of the nation's most successful and best-known estate planners, successfully handled before the United States Tax Court. So 2704A basically overrules the Harrison case. 2704B was a new thing that the staff of the Congress came up with, and it basically provides that any applicable restriction, and we're going to get to the definition of that in just a moment, is going to be disregarded for estate and gift tax purposes. Now, an applicable restriction is something that limits the ability of a corporation or a partnership to liquidate, which is stronger than what would be provided under default state law. So it's got to be a restriction on the ability to liquidate. It's got to be stronger than state law. And then it either lapses after the transfer, that restriction goes away, or the person who makes the transfer and members of the family collectively have the right to remove that restriction in whole or in part. So if, for example, let's say state law says that a majority in interest can liquidate a partnership. But our partnership agreement says you need all the partners to agree. So that's stronger than state law. It's limiting the ability of the partnership to liquidate. But if the family has all the interest, if the partnership says that the family or uh, you know two-thirds are necessary to uh, eliminate that restriction, uh, and if the family has two-thirds, then it will be it will be disregarded. So the fact that it can't liquidate won't be considered in valuing interests that are transferred during lifetime or at death. So that's the background, Bob, to 2704. Jonathan, are there currently regs under Section 2704? And if so, what do those regulations provide? 
There are regs under Section 2704, Bob, uh, and they basically just flesh out what I've talked about, especially this stronger-than-state-law restriction, greater than what the default rule would be under state law. But that brings up a very important point. 2704B4 gives the Treasury, basically the Internal Revenue Service, the ability to issue regulations that provide that other types of restrictions, in other words, by definition, something that an applicable restriction, they can issue regs saying that other restrictions are going to be disregarded in valuing property if that restriction would reduce the value of the property for estate and gift tax purposes. So that's been there since October 9, 1990. These are very, very broad, what are known as legislative regulations. They're called legislative regulations because they basically give the Treasury the ability to issue, you know, almost the equivalent of a statute. You go ahead and you issue this reg, and, and, and that's what Congress has given the Treasury the power to do. So, Jonathan, have there been any case law developments under Section 2704? Yes, there has, Bob. There has been one principal case known as uh, Keir versus Commissioner. Uh, it's a Fifth Circuit case decided in 2002. In fact, Bob, I'll give you the site without charge. It's 292 Fed Third 490. Again, a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision. In that case, the IRS tried to argue that the restriction on a partner's ability to liquidate was an applicable restriction. In other words, it wasn't something that said the partnership can't liquidate. It restricted a partner's ability to have his or her interest liquidated. And the IRS came in and said, we want you to find tax court and then the Fifth Circuit that this is an applicable restriction and therefore it should be disregarded. Well, the tax court said, nope, we're going to grant summary judgment to the taxpayer on this. We don't think it's an applicable restriction. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed that it did it on a slightly different basis than the tax court. What the Fifth Circuit said was there is an outside partner. And even though that outside partner, not a member of the family, has the a tiny interest, its consent is necessary under the partnership agreement to... Liquidate the, uh, liquidate the interest. So the, the Internal Revenue Service said, you see, the, 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 it's stronger than state law and it's an applicable restriction, but the Fifth Circuit said it's not an applicable restriction because to be an applicable restriction, the family alone has to have the ability to basically remove it or to force the liquidation. And here, because we have an outsider who owns a tiny interest, it's not an applicable restriction. By definition. But the IRS said, but wait a minute, court. We know, we can prove that this outside non-family member would have quickly agreed to the liquidation. And the court said, we are going to accept that that is true, that you can prove it. We're going to accept that the outsider would agree to it instantly, no problem, they'd love to do it. But still, it doesn't meet the definition of an applicable restriction because an applicable restriction is one that the family alone can remove. So this really caused the IRS to backpedal, and as far as I know, the IRS has not come out again under 2704 and the current regulations to argue that if the partnership agreement says you can't liquidate without everybody's consent and you have one outsider, even with a small interest, but a non-family member, that it's not an applicable restriction, and therefore Section 2704B does not apply. So it will not be disregarded in valuing the interest that's being transferred, whether during lifetime or at death. 
Jonathan, uh, word on the street is that the IRS is going to issue new regulations under Section 2704, and they're probably going to come out sometime in early fall. Um, what have you heard about that, and what direction will these regulations likely go? Well, well, Bob, that's that's a great question. Um, I think the way to figure that out is to look what the Obama administration has been proposing. For the past several years, the Obama administration comes out with what is known as a green book, and that contains its proposals for changes in the tax law. And it goes all over the place, from insurance to corporations to charities to everything you can imagine, and it includes provisions relating to estate and gift tax matters. And for a number of years, they put in basically that any sort of restriction or valuation on a non-operating entity, such as a family limited partnership, an entity that doesn't do business with the public but merely manages assets for the family. Classic case, you've got marketable securities inside a family partnership, and it may be actively managed, but that's basically a holding company, and there will be no discount permitted, not for lack of control and not for lack of marketability with respect to that enterprise itself. And that's been a proposal that's been out there for a number of years. Two years ago, however, the Obama administration dropped that proposal from its Green Book. The other provisions are in there, for example, that you can only get GST exemption in a trust for 90 years. That's one of the ones. That's still there. But the one they put in where if it's a non-operating company, there's not going to be any discount if it's a family entity, like a family partnership. They've dropped that proposal, and the reason, I believe, is that the Treasury has decided that it would exercise its authority under Section 2704B, to issue regulations and get what it wants. And that's the word on the street about what it will be there. Now, the Green Book proposal said that they would make certain clear exceptions that people could follow. And I don't know this as a fact, but I think that those may be where you have a true operating company. For example, Bob, if you and your sister own a car dealership in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you give away interest to your kids or your sister dies and hers is transferred to her family, and you've got a real operating business there. You're going to get lack of control and lack of marketability discounts for that enterprise. But if you and your sister had a family partnership and you held 3M stock and General Motors stock and Microsoft and Intel and so on, you're not going to be able to get a discount with respect to those entities because it's a non-operating enterprise. At least that's what I think they'll do. In fact, I think they may look at the rules under Section 6166. 6166, of course, is the section that says you can pay your estate tax over approximately 15 years after death if you have a certain type of close held business, and one of the requirements is that it must be an active business and not just a management tool. So I think they may be looking at that as well. I believe those regulations, by the way, were drafted several years ago, but they've just never come out even for informal review by practitioners. Jonathan, do you think these regs will be challenged, and if so, what will happen in the judicial system? Well, taxpayers may attempt to challenge it, saying that these regulations are unlawful. Uh, but beginning in 1987, in an exceptionally important case called Chevron versus the EPA, the Supreme Court said that federal courts have to uphold 
any regulation issued by the executive branch, whether it's by the EPA on environmental matters or tax matters issued by the Treasury Department, unless the court finds that the regulation is arbitrary and capricious, an exceptionally difficult standard to meet, or it is directly contrary to the clear language of the statute. So uh, that's, that's something that someone who is going to challenge it would have to convince the court. Now, the, this is not contrary to the statute, I think, and I think it would be very difficult to prove it's uh, you know, arbitrary and capricious because 2704 says that the IRS can issue regs in which other kinds of restrictions, something that doesn't meet the definition of an applicable restriction, is going to be disregarded. If we go back to the Keir case, it might be that the IRS would have won if the regulations had been there, even because they say the court said we're not going to disregard this because this doesn't fall under the definition of an applicable restriction. Well, the IRS could come out and say, yeah, we know this is an applicable restriction, but this is another restriction. We're going to say we're going to disregard it. So, for example, a restriction that an individual partner can't liquidate his or her interest might be disregarded under the regs. Now, an interesting question is, will the regs say, if state law provides the restriction, we won't disregard it? And you can bet your bottom dollar, Bob, that some people will seek to get their states to put in restrictions. Uh, I've done that on a number of legislative matters. Uh, for example, Alaska was the first state to have a law. Now, Delaware has it. Others may as well. That says that a court cannot order the liquidation of any partnership or LLC unless the court makes a factual finding that it is impossible for the enterprise to continue to operate. And that's almost impossible to find. But that now is the default Alaska state law, uh, which means you're going to have a greater restriction, say, under Alaska law for a partnership, say, than the partnership law of the state of West Carolina or some state that hasn't adopted that rule. But you, you can bet people will try very, very hard to figure out ways around it. And if they're caught and the IRS challenges it, yes, they're going to try to argue that the regulation is invalid. But I, I think it's going to be a very difficult struggle for someone to be successful. Jonathan, I guess the big question is what do lawyers and CPAs, other advisors, tell their clients right now? Bob, that's a great question, and let me make an observation. Although this seems like doomsday to a lot of planners because we can no longer use limited partnerships, and as you know, Bob, people hold those sometimes until death, or they make gifts or installment sales to grant or trust of those interests, claiming discounts, which often run in the range of 30, 40, or even 50% in some circumstances, and it seems like that game is over. And that game may be, but keep in mind, that the depression of value can work against a taxpayer as well. Very few people are going to face a federal estate tax. And so if they have a partnership interest and there's a 30% discount, the step-up in basis that occurs is going to be limited to 70% of the value. If the partnership is disregarded for valuation purposes, then you're going to get 100% of value. And indeed, I know that there are some practitioners who are talking to their clients about, let's liquidate this partnership because we don't want a discount, because we're not going to face an estate tax or much of an estate tax, and we want that step up in basis. So it may be a good thing for many people. Say, I'll keep the partnership, but it's going to be disregarded for valuation purposes, so I'm going to get the step up in basis, and that would be a good thing. 
But for the moment, Bob, I think that practitioners like you need to contact their clients and say, hey, if using these discounts is important to achieving your financial and estate planning goals, let's consider transferring them now. My guess is that any transfer made before the effective date of the regulation, and I don't know whether it will be the day it comes out, although I suspect it will be sometime in the future, say four or five or six months down the line when the regs are made final, if they are. But it may be, Bob, that you need to call your clients and other practitioners do as well and say, look, we got this partnership, uh, we got this cooperation, whatever it is, we could be hurt by this proposed regulation. Let's make a transfer now. Let's do the installment sale. Let's do the gift or whatever the case may be. So that would be very, very important for practitioners to consider. In addition, if you've had a client sitting on the fence about doing his or her estate planning, this might be the catalyst to get them to move. I mean, someone's been sitting around, you've talked to the client for 10 years, yeah, I'm not going to die, I'm not worried about it, my kids are going to inherit enough. But when you go to someone and say, look, you put you know, your life on the line to make your fortune, do you really want 40% or in some states like New York and Washington, uh, 50% of your wealth just at your death to go away and then another 50% or 40% when your kids die in generation skipping tax, or would you like legitimately legally to reduce that tax burden. Most people say, yes, I would. Well, to do that, you have to take action. And now, Bob, it's even more important to consider taking the action now. I get worried uh, when someone forms a partnership on December 27th and they transfer it on December 28th. In fact, uh, I think I'm the one who came up with the installment sale trust. I waited two years between the time the partnership was formed and the grantor trust was formed before we did the sale. I really let things cure. Now, I reduced that time over the balance of my career, but I never did it back-to-back. I think you want at least 30 or 60 days of curing time between the formation of the enterprise and transfers in it just to kind of be be careful uh, on that to make sure you get a discount. Although there is a case out there called Holman uh, where the court said six days between formation and transfer was sufficient. But I'm not sure I'd want to be that risky. But the bottom line, Bob, is practitioners, lawyers, CPA, financial advisors should be talking to their clients now about this and trying to urge them to make a decision. And if they want to go forward, let's get it into place right now. Jonathan, let's focus in on this effective date. I'll give you a hypothetical. Let's say the effective date is October 31st. And in the morning on October 31st, two ranchers, husband and wife, get up, they go to see their lawyer, they sign a whole bunch of documents. And it's not until later in that day that these regulations actually come out. How do you deal with that? I mean, if they're, if they're effective on the day they're issued or, you know, it's very possible that represented are very wealthy, but they have no money, meaning they have $50 million worth of land and cattle, but no money. And they have no capacity to pay a gift tax. And they may hire expert appraisers to bring them right to the $10 million mark of what they can gift away. Um, And then when these discounts disappear, of course, their world's turned upside down. I mean, what do you see happening there? Well, Bob, this is always a problem where you have an immediate effective date, and I've been involved with some of those, and usually they give some time. My guess, Bob, is that 
let's say they come out with the regs, and I think they'll be proposed on October 31st or, or before then, in fact, and they will say these will be effective on the date that they become final, the date that the final regs are published in the Federal Register. Now, it is that date. There was, however, a regulation issued in 2007 dealing with private annuities where people would transfer property and get back a promise of an annuity. And it used to be that you could report that gain rateably over the time that you were entitled to the annuity. But the service was so unhappy with what people had been doing that it said the effective date of these proposed regulations will be now, not when they become final. That's very rare. The bottom line is, if you're worried about that, again, I think that's likely not going to be the case, but if there is an immediate effective date when the proposed regs or temporary regs come out, I would suggest that people consider taking action now before they come out in any form to ensure that they fall uh, under what I think will be a grandfathering rule. Jonathan, you brought tremendous insight to a difficult subject. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler discussing the potential of proposed regulations under IRC Section 2704. Our guest today has been Jonathan Blockmacher. Thank you for joining us.